Hey folks, and welcome back to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. This episode discusses what do the successful game projects have in common, and actually this episode was recorded last year in 2020 uh, during a fireside chat I did for the Built to Last 2020 conference. This conference was organized by Google and Pixel Federation with the goal of supporting smaller developers, especially those in Eastern Europe. The topics we're going to cover in this episode are what are the biggest differences in how the big companies and the indie ones build their games, how to decide what the project is going to be, is it intuition or more a data-driven approach or somewhere in between, we're going to talk about how to choose the monetization model for your game, we're going to talk about sustainability, reaching that through updates, new players, as well as reactivating lapsed ones, and we are going to discuss the shifts in player behavior that have occurred during the 2020, you know, lockdowns and stuff like that. I want to give a shout out to the Googler, Martin Svoboda, who interviewed me. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you uh, stay tuned because we have a lot of really cool content coming out in 2021. So yeah, have yourself uh, a great start for this year. And without further ado, of course, shout outs to our amazing sponsors. We pretty much use just about every single product that uh, Iron Source offers. We're, we're completely integrated with the platform. Of course, the mediation products, all ad, ad products, and the company that can assist us in doing UA and monetization and all the uh, additional products that come along with it. It takes a lot of uh, headache away from us. It takes a lot of the hard, busy work off of our hands, having a kind of an all-in-one platform. You just heard Andrew Stone. He's the CEO at Random Logic Games, who use Iron Source's platform to grow their games in the smartest way possible. If you want to grow like Random Logic, you can get the SDK on Iron Source's website. That's ironsrc.com. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, Marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appsflyers.com. Uh, without further delay, let me introduce our, our guests tonight, which I'm super excited to have. Uh, we please welcome Mishka Katkov who, and I need to read it because there is a, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy curriculum there. You were a monetization manager, product manager, producer, head of studio and advisor at companies such as Rovio, Supercell and Zynga. Currently you're a founder and CEO of your own uh, gaming studio called To Be Announced. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm not uh, ma making mistake there. And as a passion project, about almost nine years ago, you started a blog called The Construction of Fun. It developed into the podcast, and, and the goal is uh, to break down successful free-to-play games and diagnosis what makes them fun or not. Mishka, welcome. It's it's pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I started blogging when it was still cool. So, <laughs> and started podcasting on time as well, or. I don't know. We'll see. A lot of listeners for sure, but I hope it's still cool. <laughs> oh, I, I, I love it. And I hope that uh, on this call, there is not many people who don't know you, uh, who people who do not know you. I, I highly recommend to just Google the construction of fun and go there and, and listen to everything you guys are uh, have put together. But back to, back to your own uh, studio and your own experience. I mean, working for such a big names, like like uh, I mentioned, Rovio, Zynga, Supercell, it uh, definitely show you how, how well some of these big big players are approaching uh, the market and, and creation of the games. But you're also an advisor for some smaller studios. Currently with our own studio, you're part of our gaming growth lab in Finland. So uh, together with other smaller studios, you're working and developing yourself. So what would you say is the main, are the main differences between those how these big studios approach product development and how the small in the uh, limited resources type of studios approach game development. Well, yeah. So let me talk from the perspective of, of how to fail. And then you can, because that's what I know the most. And then, <laughs> then through multiple different tries of, of different type of games. So then you can maybe extrapolate. If you don't do this, then you will likely succeed. So in terms of, if, in terms of what, really go into when when thinking about your project and how to uh, how to fail is is two three things so first of all uh, typically the way i've failed and then, and then i've seen others fail is to taking a piece that is too big so trying to make a game that you simply don't have the resources to make you start thinking about certain type of triple a games and then you come in in your mind of like we could do this we could do that and and the scope grows and grows and grows and grows and you're unable to complete. So that's number one. Uh, number two is doing something that you don't want to be doing. So I'm not gonna hate on any typical genres, but idle games, for example, like if, if you don't like idle games, do not make an idle game. I know it looks simple. I know anybody can do it, <laughs> but if you don't like them, you probably shouldn't be doing them. Because if you start doing something that you don't like, then it probably will suck too. I don't mean that everybody on the team needs to be the most excited about the game. You know, we've heard stories about guys who are launching, you know, Candy Crush. Some of them were saying, this is bullshit. This is a bad game. I don't like it. And then it was successful. Like, well, what do I know? But anyways, at least most of the team needs to be excited of, of what they're doing. And um, number three is, is, um, is, is understanding what the market wants. So this is a mistake that I've done as well is sometimes, and especially in a smaller studios and especially with, with, uh, with very excited teams that really know what they want to do, they might not be looking at what the market is actually playing at the moment. They're like, no, 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 this game that we're making, this is fun. We're sitting here, us five, we're playing this game. It is the most funnest game you can play. And then it's just amazing and we love it. But nevertheless, if you don't do the marketability testing, if you don't understand your audience, if you don't look at the market and understand where your game is going, understand the CPS, understand the themes that you're making, because of course it's gonna be a steampunk or cyberpunk or something something that you guys really, really like, you think it's just the most awesome theme, 
or it's just the most generic theme, then it will, despite being a, a good game, it might not make it because of the CPIs being too big. And then you learn the business case of, oh, I need to actually acquire the players because, you know, the stores are what they are. So, so yeah, so the opposite of that is that when you start a successful gaming project, and, and this is despite in any companies where you, you might be working at, you have to think about what you really are excited about, uh, what you all the team is excited about. You have to think about what can you do? And it doesn't mean what can you do now? It means, it, it means what resources you're missing and how would you do this in the smartest way possible? And the third part is who are your players? What does the market look like? Who are the competitors? How this game is going to stand out and doesn't need to stand out by being better game, by being deeper and more complicated and more com confusing or, or you know any, any of that. It might just stand out by having a more accessible theme. It might just stand out by having a better set of controls. It might just stand out by, by having just a better narrative. So there, you don't have to, you know, do everything to stand out. It could be one thing, but do that one thing better than the others in the market. Yes. Speaking of the marketability and you know being having that finding that one advantage, big studios can can test a lot, right? They can prototype. Uh, for the limited budget uh, studios, what would you be the the best way to to go yeah. about? So you testing? Let me tell you this. You can spend unlimited amount of money to test your concept, but you can also spend extremely small amount of money to see if your concept works. So for example, and I'm taking this out of, out of the startup that I run, the easiest way to test your marketability is, let's just put it this way. So we're making a game and it's not, not we, and this is not particularly why, but let's say I'm making a game and I'm thinking about a strategy game and I'm thinking about themes. I like pirates. I like Vikings. I like, uh, of course, I like the uh, space marines. Who doesn't like space marines? And I also like modern warfare. So these are four different, very different themes. Like, how would I test it? Well, luckily, whether you're doing your game in Unreal or whether you're doing your game in Unity, you can go, or whether you're doing in some other engine, you can go to the asset stores, purchase assets, place the assets, create, um, base, so write about your game, just like you would in an app description, and use services like, for example, I was using Geek Lab. Uh, it's practically, no, it's not practically free. It is actually a free service for the, for the first month where you can test these, these assets. They, so basically you create screens of your gameplay. Like this is how our game would look. Or you can even, you can even reskin your, your game if you want to. So if you want to do videos. But in the beginning, just do screens of your gameplay. That could be, if it's an RPG game, you probably do a one screen where the character's you know, standing and there's going to be a bunch of stats. And you just change that character. And then the second screen in the app screen would be uh, the, uh, the strategy scene. So it might be the city. And the city is shown from a certain angle. And then you just change the art assets. And the art assets are costing tens of euros like honestly tens of euros like if you can't afford tens of euros to purchase assets that you can test something as important as your cpi uh i don't <laughs> think you should be you should be doing it but but anyways and it's really really simple and then you run those tests uh, through facebook campaign manager or or you know google is is good but i mean i prefer facebook on this because you would run ads on instagram on on, on facebook canvas and then you can see the conversion of, of your of your titles, like what kind of theme resonates with the target audience that you're going for. So you have to actually understand who you're marketing the game to. And through that, you can kind of start seeing maybe not what the best theme is, 
but you would for sure see that people don't actually want cyberpunk. Like this is too confusing. Most of the, so the CPI is going higher and higher because the IPM is going lower and lower. So that's what I would suggest it is. And the thing is the big studios don't do this. They would do the most expensive ways to figure out because there's a bunch of managers uh, and the user research team and the market research team and the product management team. And, and then they will do a long test. Meanwhile, as a small nimble studio, you can run these tests uh, in a couple of weeks and you'll be far ahead. So I wouldn't say this is something that the big studios are doing. I should say, I, I would say that this is something that is mandatory for the small studios. Yeah, that, that uh, makes, makes sense. Uh, how about the decision about, about the monetization of the game? Because on, in, in our uh, country, in Czech Republic and Slovakia, we have a lot of uh, developers who may be testing their, their mobile waters first because they, they, they used to develop the console games, PC games, and, and Steam is the one platform to go for. Now they're going into the mobile world and not really sure about the uh, monetization. Mm -hmm. So they end up doing pay to play because it's easier to, easiest to calculate for them. So how would you, how would you recommend to, to think about this? Well, the best way, if it's if you're doing something for the first time, then try doing something that others have done. In other words, just pick a benchmark. Just, you know, what is the game that is in your market, similar like yours, and they have a certain type of meta system, preferably not Battle Pass because that requires a lot of content, but if you can do Battle Pass, for sure do it. Uh, but pick a system that they are using and say, we're going to use exactly this one, but in our game. And preferably pick the system from a game that actually makes money. Don't pick a system from a game that don't make money and then put that in your game and you'd be like, our game doesn't make money either. That, that's also not the, not the way to do it. You're just proving the point. So that will be the, the, the most important approach. When it comes to you know, the future of monetization with IDFA deprecation, it, it's going to be more difficult for big companies that, are, that have optimized their user acquisition, that can optimize the early gameplay based on what kind of players they're acquiring, and they can really optimize their user acquisition to hunt for whales. So it's actually better for smaller and especially mid-tier developers that can do a broad appeal games with broad monetization versus whale-driven monetization. So I would say at least on the short term, monetization should be getting easier for, for these developers. So just pick a benchmark. Successful benchmark. Yeah, well, if, if, you, if you're saying that, uh, what I see usually the, the studios, uh, as you said, it's, it's five super excited people doing what they love, and therefore they're aiming for you know the, that genre-defining game. Uh, then, then what benchmark would you pick in, in in that case, or would you recommend to go for it, uh, or or rather test on on something that? That's the ability to develop a successful game on something else than the passion project first. Yeah. Well, even if you're genre defining, that would basically mean that you're falling in between a couple of different genres. And then you just have to take the element out of out of, I don't know, just read our blog or something. But but you can you can find a, a, a like you make your core gameplay like, okay, this is really hooking. I like it. We tested, I tested with my mother, she loves it, with my neighbor, he loved it. Everybody loves it. Okay, how are we going to make money from this? Well, then there's multiple different models and just just pick. It could be, you know, the golf clash type of model where you, you know, just, 
you have to bet and whoever wins. It depends, of course, on your game. There, there, it could be the design home type of model where like we're competing who makes the most nicer version of this. It could be the Clash of Clans type of model where you just have to wait and wait and wait. Every time you do something, just wait and wait. Or it can be the Clash Royale type of model where there's just so many rewards coming in that you just don't have time to open it up. So please use keys to open up all the rewards or otherwise you'll miss them. So there's multiple different models. Just pick a game that works, but try not to say like, well, Actually, out of all of this, I like Fortnite. And you'd be like, okay, but they also have like 100, 150 million DAU and, and a development team of like a thousand people. So anything else that might work? Yeah, yeah, uh, right. Well, uh, thank you. I would love to remind everyone watching that they can pose the question uh, yeah. and they'll open soon, open, open. Uh, uh, these questions uh, to you, so please do post it. In the meantime, um, you know, user testing happens at one stage, and then the, the deployment, the launch of the game happening is happening a year or two uh, later. In the construction of fun, you're you're analyzing the games, analyzing the behavior. Is there any any shift in behavior that you've noticed within the last year? You know, in the, in the COVID situation, what what would be the main trends or where the behavior is shifting? Have you noticed any? Um, no, I actually haven't been looking at that, like uh, behavior in the sense of spending or session length or that kind of stuff. I meant more the genre. I oh, genre. I would say the most surprising, not surprising thing, that it was surprising in the beginning, but when you think about it, it's the most logical thing. So the biggest winner from the lockdowns has been social casino games. And you'd be like, why would somebody play social casino game? Like it's by far the biggest. The revenue is up by 50% year over year. And they was already making a lot of money. And you're also like confused. Like why would you be at home playing casino games? Well, they closed down all the casinos. So now they have more users playing their casino games because they don't have casinos where to go to. And they just like casinos. So then I was like, of course it makes all the sense. So that was a surprise. But when you think about it, it does, it's not a surprise at all. Wow! Wow! Yeah, I would. I, I thought about it. I haven't looked at the data, and I, I, I thought that the way where it's gonna shift, it's it's more towards uh, the, the core games and more towards AAA, because you know now I have more time to play instead of just sitting on a bus. Yeah, yeah. Everything grew. Everything grew significantly, but the biggest grower has been by far has been casino games, just because it's the new type of audience. And the second kind of a thing that is. I will do a prediction that I'm pretty sure is true. And that is more core gamers are moving to mobile. So you'll be seeing, there's a lot of talk about people who haven't played games before are now playing hyper casual games. And then they're progressing through like this continuum of games, which I, again, I just don't believe there's, there's that type of, it's like a, it's like saying a continuum to becoming a drug addict is you start taking a beer and then it goes to wine and then you're drinking vodka and then you're doing light drugs and doing heavy drugs. Like it doesn't work that way. Same thing in games. It's like, it's, it's a, it's not a continuum in my opinion. So I would say that, um, that the new audience is not the one that is adopting hyper casual games who haven't played games before. I would say the new audience will be coming in from people who play actually core games, core audience, and they'll be playing more and more. And we already see, I mean, League of Legends launched today. Um, Call of Duty is doing phenomenally well on mobile, better than anybody expected. Uh, Apex Legends is coming in. Uh, we know the Battlefield is in works. We know that there's a lot of very high quality games like Genshin Impact as well coming in. So 
it's definitely speaks of the fact that core game there will be more and more core gamers on mobile as the time passes is there any any uh golden advice on how to how to capture the newcomers to the market oh uh, for, for well it, it's difficult because they will be coming in for the brands they will be coming in to play call of duty They'll be play Apex. They will play League of Legends. Those are the games that are going to draw them onto mobile. But um, but for a small studio, no. Just keep in mind that that a person who plays Call of Duty is not a person who would not play, you know, Candy Crush. It's there's no such thing as a core gamer. There's a situation where you play different games and there's your taste, but it is broad taste. We all play different type of games. When I play a little bit of hyper casual game. They might play a little bit of, uh, I don't know, team fight tactics. It's just, it's not exclusive to a certain genres so or like RPG is the only thing that you play. It's different kind of things. But what I expect is the growth, especially on the core game sides. Got it, got it. Okay. We have two questions in the chat. So let me ask the, the first one. What do you expect will be the trend of multi-platform games like Genshin Impact? What would be the trend? I mean... Um, well, multi-platform games is, 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 of course, a good thing for a company because they consider that they can acquire players from multiple different channels and they're all playing in the same player base. So as a business case, it makes sense. What I think really about multi-platform development, it is incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. So I would say it's it's above the scope of pretty much everybody who's listening to this. Like this is reserved to the riots of the world to the Chinese companies with 500 developers. It, like there's so many problems to solve to even hit in the right quality on one platform, let alone putting the same thing on console and on PC and why not on Switch as well, all different control schemes, all different stores or <laughs> all different players. So so what I think about it, I think about that it's incredibly difficult and it's reserved only for the uh, for the top dogs. Okay, so how how, this is going to change with the uh, not multi-platform but multi-screen playing and players like like Stadia, for example, where you can play on on your laptop and you can play on your smart TV, you can play on your phone as I, well. I, yeah, I don't want to say anything bad about Stadia, but I know that they're giving it for free. So, <laughs> like, I think that tells you already about like I don't remember when it launched. It had Assassin's Creed on it, and I asked, like people were so excited. I was like, well, who wants to play Assassin's Creed on this screen? And then yeah. we go to the uh, multi-platform development. And what kind of controls you need so i think it's i think in the end it's about accessibility like this is for now so i'm joking it's now this year next year but in the future uh we're talking what we're talking about multi-platform we're talking about cloud-based we're talking about accessibility to the software and on the long run it makes all the sense like why do you need an app store like keep it you know google and 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 Apple can keep their app store if I can just access my game from wherever, from the TV, boom, it's on. I can just play it. I don't need you guys. I'll play this beautiful game that works on my TV and instantly works on my device without logging in or downloading some, some small client for it. Yes, that scenario, I do believe in. That's very interesting, and that's where it could be heading, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay, okay, thank you. And the, I hope we answered the question. 
the second question that's here, uh, do you think that advertisement-based model for game is still suitable and probably sustainable? There is a lot of hyper games that are full of ads and people are complaining a lot, but still those games have millions of dollars uh, of downloads and, and high revenue. Is this the way in the near future or is there a, a, also a shift uh, that you well, observe? People don't like ads. I mean, you don't have to like, I know that that any any service provider will say, well, our ads are super, like we monetize our game. People do not like ads. It doesn't matter whether you're watching a YouTube, you hate the ads. If you play the game, you hate the ads. And sure, they give you five gems, that's why you watch the ad, but you still hate the ad. Like, let's be honest, <laughs> that's a good starting point. But as a developer, ads do bring you revenue. So the question is like, what about the hyper-casual model? Hyper-casual models, actually, I've, I've gone through some data um, that, might not be visible for everybody, but they are the the one of the worst sufferers in terms of uplift in, in marketing, meaning that acquiring hyper-casual users is becoming more and more and more difficult every year. And it's more and more difficult to stay on top. Now, there has been a lot of talk about hybrid casual models. So basically integrating ads with your in-app purchases and Archero is a great example, but there's not too many other examples. So again, going forward, what's gonna happen? very difficult to know because of the idfa deprecation because at the moment the best ads are being run i mean hyper casual just advertise to each other from one game to another from one game to another and there's just almost like a closed circle so so what's going to happen in the future yes you will you will still have ads it is a still a relevant uplift especially to not not even to monetize those who don't who don't you know pay through not purchases but but overall um, but I don't know. I'm kind of like threading this line of, of like, in the end, people hate ads. Like that's, that's really in the end, like you, sure you can, you can integrate them in a positive way, but people still hate them and they just like them for what they give you. So use ads, but you know, but you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I lost uh, one of the last, uh, podcast on the construction of fun about about marketability and you guys were, were discussing the the idfa and what it's gonna uh mean for advertising and you were mentioning that uh or one of your uh, guests were, was mentioning that it, it's gonna lead to better uh, assets better creatives because they will be more more tailored towards, yeah. towards users that are that are uh higher of higher value to to the game but with IDFA deprecation, with having less data, less information about the users, uh, how do you, or have you thought about how do you prevent from you know, not talking, not locking yourself and your game only for just one part of the audience that may make sense that's already in your app, but you'll be, you'll be missing out as a huge part uh, of audience that's, that's outside of your app at the yeah. moment? That's, that's a good question. And I, I kind of wanted to address that by saying that marketability is a loop. I don't know if that's a word, wrong word. I was kind of thinking about core loop, meaning that you have to kind of you have to constantly go back to it and constantly see how your audience is changing. Because as your game matures, your audience inside the game will change. We've seen this multiple times. Running a live game, suddenly you get players who are performing worse and worse. Like, why are they performing worse? Where are they coming from? Then you start problem solving it. And the fact sometimes is that your audience is changing. So, for example, was it this RPG game? Uh, 
And while it was performing really well with the initial audience and the development team was pushing more and more RPG mechanic, they didn't notice that they were coming in more and more of different type of audience that started skewing the game. And the new audience was actually more casual players, especially more female focused. And what they were looking for in an RPG game is they just wanted to build a nice looking cute team. And they wanted to use this character because they like this character. It's not because it's red and it's good against green or yada, 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 yada. It's like, no, I like I like the way he looks. I really like him. I, he's a cute name, and I want to use him in my team always. I don't care if it's worse or better. Like, I like him. So naturally, and the development team still is pushing for, like, no, 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 even more and more and more core mechanics. You have to switch around your teams, do better and this and that. So this kind of speaks of uh, – and the game started tanking, actually, and the game dropped out of top 100. So – that was the team not understanding that the audience was changing and they were doubling down on something that worked in the beginning. So as we go you know, forward with the limitations that IDFA set, you know, sets in terms of how many different campaigns you can be running. So at the moment, they're talking about 100 campaigns at the same time. That's way less than it would be normally. So what you have to do is you really have to invest into the creatives, really understand what your players are getting excited about. So what I'm advocating is what we talked about in the beginning. Test, 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 test early. You don't have to even launch the campaigns. You can do, you know, through the fake stores and then through these services where you can start testing how the game is, is performing and do also a lot of qualitative research. You can actually ask your players through the questionnaires, even the services like Geek Lab actually allow you to run questionnaires after the test where you can start kind of understanding of what is the audience, what are they looking for, what are, whether, you know, what, where where you're you're heading at? So constantly testing, constantly understanding what your audience is. Yeah, and and you know, understanding where your audience is is it's usually a responsibility of of uh, of the analyst of you know PM. Uh, but then <laughs> you have the development that's pushing different message, and you know, trying trying yeah. to this back to, to to your own studio. Did you? Put any processes, any 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 ways, how to resolve conflicts between two different teams with slightly different messages. Uh, do you have do you have any you know what's the ideal setup between the PM and the and the development team? Well, PM is well the the ideal setup is is in the way that PM sets the boundaries and and you have certain type of goals for your product that could be three to six different kind of polls like we have to solve this we have to solve that we have to do this so for example if if content is something that is going to be very important for your game let's say you're making a level based game one of your pillars for your product has to be to embrace the content treadmill so that means you are from the beginning understanding that this will be very content driven so you're from the beginning solving how you're going to produce content in the most efficient way whether you're already understand the outsourcing partner, whether at the concept validation or pre-production stage, you're already working, for example, with an external content producer for, let's say, puzzle level. So, so you understand that there are certain critical elements that you have to solve in your production process and or, or for your game to succeed, and you are already proving them. And some of them might be like a, a right partner for level creation. That could be one of one of the one of the elements. And um, and so so yeah, does that make sense uh, for for the conflict selection? But other than that, like really, in my opinion, it's like if you if if the person has more knowledge about the audience by doing more market research and more audience research, how can you argue against that person? 
I mean, if you're in a, if you're a developer, should you say like, well, I know that you've done all these studies and you show me these numbers, but I don't think this is the best. Like, what what kind of discussion is that? Like, then we're talking about personal tastes versus uh, quantifiable knowledge. Yeah, yeah, right. Perfect. Yeah, it makes makes absolute sense. Yeah, we have one more question. Could you be more specific on monetization models that worked well for you? Oh, oh it, it was never about the monetization model not working or working. It was always about the game working or not working. And by game, I mean the game engaging and retaining. Uh, it doesn't really matter. You know, I, I've done stupid monetization stuff. We was just like predatory towards players, just absolutely horrible. And it worked really well because the game retained and I'm not proud of it. Like those, and then I've done really smart way that was very good and makes all the sense. And they're very much built around retaining players and making sure that they're having most fun and getting most out of it. But if the game in that case did not retain, then the monetization model didn't work either. So, so I wouldn't, you know, I would say that that going forward, it's really important that you build your monetization models that are modern. So don't look at games like, let's say, if you're playing Clash of Clans, that is an outdated monetization model just because the game is old. Um, it forces you to wait. There's a lot of like, you know, time where you're just doing nothing and and you have to pay to play essentially, and then you have to pay to win essentially. And then there are games that are that are quite modern that are monetizing through these battle pass systems that are basically allowing you to gain more if you pay, but you just have to engage more. So you're not really getting anything, but you will getting more by engaging more. So they're driving both the monetization part as well as the engagement part. Now, that's that's the sort of a thing that you have to just be thinking about in your monetization is what are your session designs like? What do you want players to do? How much do you want them to play? And monetize around that. And um, and, and for that, there, there are multiple models, but if you if you're not that familiar with monetization i would definitely start with rpg games because they will give you the most deepest deepest monetization you can find because they don't have core gameplay i mean most of them don't have core gameplay it's just meta and monetization yeah yeah thank you thank you speaking of the the battle passes which is something that that hasn't been around that uh, that mm -hmm. long as ads or in our purchases can you give me an example of good use of, of Battle Pass? Uh, well, apart from Fortnite or? Okay, yeah, Fortnite. Uh, yeah, apart apart from that, let's say from some, some smaller studio. Well, from smaller studio that, that Google likes. Well, Traplight used a pretty good, that was probably the last one for Battle Legion that I engaged with and actually purchased a Battle Pass. That was Traplight, uh, their, their Battle Legion game. It made all the sense. And um, it you know it, it felt worth the money, so yeah that that was good. But again, I purchased it because I was so engaged and it worked in their model of scrolling down and going through so many 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 battles, where I was already earned so much. So it was almost like a like a like a mechanic that that made said oh actually so one monetization model that works always and is the easiest to implement is the piggyback mechanic. So piggy bank. So basically, as you're playing, you're earning something. In order to take away the earnings, you have to break the piggy bank. And in order to break the piggy bank, you need to pay one dollar, two dollar, three dollars, whatever it is. 
that works always. It is the easiest to implement. It is by 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 certainty one of the biggest revenue drivers in all the games that have it. Sometimes often even bigger than the battle pass and way easier to make. Thank you. Thank you. That's a million dollar answer. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah>. At least. <laughs> we have uh, another question in chat. Do you think that the market is ready for a new business model for mobile games? No pay to win, no ads, no time purchase. I don't know where the monetization lies then, but uh, yeah, mm -hmm. what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, the, the only model that could, that could be, you know, different would be subscription-based model, where you're basically buying access, and that that would be the sort of a thing. And, and there's a lot of, you know, players trying to do that, but just with bundling a lot of services inside one subscription. And of course, World of Warcraft is pretty good at subscribing, at subscription monetization. Now, what I don't like is people talking about pay-to-win. Pay-to-win is not a bad thing. There are games where it could be a bad thing and it breaks the game, but most of the game, it's actually pretty good for them. Um, I, for example, enjoy both competitive games where there's pay to win, like World of Tanks, World of Warships, very much pay to win. Uh, you progress, you pay, you get your ass kicked. You're like, you know what? I'm going to come back. I'm going to buy a better tank and let's see what happens then. You, whatever your username is. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And, and it works. It's not for everybody, but it really works. And the, the important part about pay to win versus fair, sort of a, like a fair gameplay is if you're trying to do this fair game, if you're trying to do a very much an esports game, monetization will be extremely difficult because you cannot sell anything that makes you stronger. So now you're selling only appearance. And when you're selling only appearance, your monetization is lower. And when your monetization is lower, your whole business case relies on incredibly high DAU. And if you say, well, Garena Free Fire is also not pay to win a lot. And you're like, yes, but they also have 80 million DAU. What about that? You know, like, it's like, what, what are you trying to do? If you can get those DAUs, if you have an IP, go for it. Then you're lucky, you know, in a way. Like, you don't have to think about monetization. If you can't, then there are games like, I don't know, Destiny that could probably work as a pay to win because you're shooting just monsters that are coming out of cave. Like, who cares if your cannon is better? And who cares if you paid a little bit more for, for getting it and, and your teammates like you because you're supporting them? Like, what is bad in that type of pay to win? Yeah. yeah. But again, I'm just a product manager, so I would always say that. That's <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, another question. How would you approach the transition of a heavily invested audience of a previous title for a sequel? Hmm. Uh, so how would I basically launch a sequel, right? And and that it would make sense. Well, most yeah. of the time we've seen that sequels actually are a bad idea. Like on mobile. They 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 well, Candy Crush is a perfect example of sequels. You just put in Candy Crush Saga, then you put in Candy Crush Soda Saga, then you put in Candy Crush Jelly Saga, then you put Candy Crush Friends, then put them on the line and see how that works. It's essentially the same game. They're just performing worse and worse and worse. And of course, really well compared to like, we'll all be happy with friends or whatever of the version of it. But the other one is like third of what the previous one made. So there's a case of sequels not being the smartest thing. Then you think about like, let's say Clash of Clans, which is as old of a game as Candy Crush almost. What they did is they almost pretty much built a sequel inside the game, like Builder's Base, which is pretty much like Clash of Clans 2. So 
I think you have to be very careful. I think you should think about rather growing your existing game and putting in more elements to it rather than building a sequel. Uh, there's not a lot of cases where we've seen sequel work. Yeah, and in case you, you want to you know, change the engine, then probably it's a better idea to develop completely standalone title than yeah. Yeah, like a brand, almost like a brand extension, and and but then we then we end up in a very interesting discussion of like if you want to make a sequel or a second game or sell like an extension of your game, have you invested in the IP in the brand of your game, or is it a game that has been just downloaded hundred million times, but but it actually doesn't have any story because it was launched in two thousand ten, and since then it just has massive amounts of installs, and yes, it might have made a billion dollars, and yes, a lot of people have played it. But did you actually invest into that game? Is there anything more to it or was it just a first mover? So you have to answer those questions because you might make a next game of that that was a successful game, but it just kind of was like an app, you know, like a, like a first farming game, for example. And people kind of played it because like a Dragon Veil type of thing, you know, it was a big thing back then, but who cares about Dragon Veil because there, there wasn't really nothing in it. And if you do Dragon Veil, the sequel for it, and it might look a lot better. People actually don't have an emotional tie-in to that game because it really wasn't anything else but an app. Yeah, true, true. All right, uh, since we are running out of time, then yeah. I have one, one last question, or two last questions, actually. One is uh, from the audience. Should my primary motive uh, to be making good game or earning money? That is up to the person to decide. If you have, if you have investors, they will answer this for you. Um, like uh, then again, if your investor is your mom, then then she will be just like she will be proud whatever you do. Uh, but if somebody has invested money into funding what you are doing, I would really suggest that you make uh, a game that earns money that allows you to. Okay, so just take a step back because this person is kind of considering it as game as a product. Should I make a game that is critically acclaimed or a game that is super successful and for some reason people will hate it, even though usually it goes in a way that something is both successful and both critically acclaimed. That's kind of like how it works. But I understand this question. Now, in this case, if we're talking about free-to-play game, you should make a game that makes money because you can invest that money into making your game better so that people can enjoy it for the longer time. If you make a game that is good game, but doesn't make any money, you can't invest into development of that game, and hence the game will die off. And people will be like, oh, that was a cool game that I played. And there's a ton of those games that we've all played that was kind of funny, and it was kind of fun to play, and I played it for a week, and then I didn't play it anymore because it was kind of done. So, but again, up to the person to decide. I think both are great. Like if you make a game that is critically acclaimed, that is really good thing. But if you make a game that makes a lot of money, that's also a really good thing. Yeah, I Probably. think it, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it ties also to the to the motive and, and, and theme of this whole event. It's, it's built to last, right? And in order for a project to last, you need to earn some money to, to be able to reinvest, to, to keep the users interested and, and keep them engaged. Yeah. But also, it's, it's, a, it's a good push for your podcast, for the construction <laughs> of fun, which I think it's, it's a lot of it about it, right? What makes those games successful? And and is the is the success in money a reflection of the quality of the game, or is it just you know very well monetized? I, I don't think it's it. This has to be this have to be either or situation. It could be both, right? 
Well, there are plenty of games that are not good for their audience, and <laughs> they still make a lot of money, and they don't have a good production value. So I'm just not going to name any of them, but you might easily find few that are just bad games. And that is 100% true. There are bad games that make ungodly amount of money. So yeah. it is what it is, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. Mishka, uh, one last question. I, I did a research on you and I and I uh, listened to a couple of podcasts and interviews you made. And you said that uh, besides you know sharing your knowledge and observations through the construction of fun, you'd like to contribute to the industry with at least one, uh, uh, how to put it, uh, smash hit of the game. <laughs> so how how far are you? Is it going to come from your studio now? I, I always hope so. I always hope. Every year I hope that it would come from my studio. Uh, the studios might change, but I'm I'm still for it. Like I I I very much like you I think you you guys said in the beginning that this is a great industry and it's a great year to be in this industry. I've been in, in this industry for, for the last 12 years and um it is I don't know, it's it's a it's a good grind. I love it. I I love making new games and I love the uh I love the grind of making the games. I love the the. I don't like failing, and I've done that too many times. And it's just it's always a challenge. And when I do this deconstructor of fun stuff, it's just me kind of like going back to the drawing table or just trying to figure out like what I should be doing next. That what makes sense. And of course, we don't talk about all the things. And despite having all the numbers, it doesn't mean that you might be successful. And some people are successful even with their first try without having any kind of. Um, knowledge about the industry and good for them and it's 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 just um yeah uh, i i try <laughs> well i keep my fingers crossed uh mishka thank you so much for your participation i hope that well, we will have you one day in person in in czech republic or slovakia or where we're gonna host this event next time uh it was it was absolute pleasure to have you i could talk to you for hours and hours hopefully <laughs> next time we will we are able to do it over a beer and yeah uh thank you mishka sounds good thanks martin <laughs>